The following podcast contains language that is not suitable for everybody. Welcome to issue 218 of Super Skull, your weekly new comic day audio digest. This time for the week of January 9th, 2019. My name is Nick Wybar. I'm here with Marcus Schwimmer. Hello, Nicholas. And Curtis Sullivan. What up, Dell? Hey. Happy ha- New Year. Yeah. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, gentlemen. It's 2019. It's great to be here with you. It's our first recording of the new year, of mm-hmm. the new anim. And it just feels so different, which is nice. Does it? How does it feel different to you? Just every time you move into a new year. For me... Yep. It's just, a, a, you just can feel it. You can tell. I, how Can I describe it? Describe Not really. it to me. Describe it to me. It's, Physically, where do you feel it? You feel it in a part of your body? It's just in my brain. My brain feels like I'm thinking about stuff. Yep. I'm examining things. Yep. You know, I know it's cliche. I don't really do any resolutions, if you will. I don't go, I'm going to do this. Uh-huh. But it just starts happening whether I want it to or not. Like, I'm going to, like, I'm painting my room tonight. Why? Because I'm like, I'm going to go and buy a can of paint, and I'm going to do that wall that I wanted to do. Just because it's a new year. I guess. Yeah. Is there any science to that? You feel fresh. You feel refreshed. Marcus? Yes. How do you feel about this? About a new year? I, I've, had a, I've had a rough go of the new year, really uh, peaking yesterday. The, the year has already peaked for you? Well, no, the bad <laughs> luck. It's kind of has kind of re- yesterday. What's was the a, opposite of a peak? What a, a low? It valleyed. Yes, it valleyed. My my bad luck valleyed even harder yesterday. Okay. And uh, I was out doing a job, and a police officer came up to me while I was out surveying the land, mm-hmm. and he said, "Hey, do you know?" Uh, and I won't name which university I was at. He said, "Do you know this campus is smoke free?" Now yeah. you were sitting in your truck. You're- I was out walking about. You're out walking around. Yep. You're clearly a working man. I would I would say so. You probably got a vest on of some I kind. I got a vest. I got Carhartt bibs. I got the whole thing. You know I'm there. Excuse me, sir. Excuse me, young man. Yeah. Did you know that this is a non-smoking campus? That's correct. And as you both know, and as our listeners know, if you've listened long enough, I am occasionally, by occasionally I mean every day, a user of smokeless tobacco. It's a filthy habit. Never do it. Now, when you say, no, let's get... Let's let's uh, get real here. When you say smokeless tobacco, yeah, you're he, talking chalk. He's using that advertiser talk. You're talking smokeless tobacco. You're talking about mouth tobacco. Yeah, yeah. I use the I use the sweet gum chaw. The sweet gum chaw. Yeah, the disgusting. Right. It kind of looks yeah. like a oh, chunk of dookie <laughs> yes. in your mouth. So this officer of the peace saw yeah. you probably you know Spitting. soft vomiting onto the ground. <laughs> sure, yeah. The swill that yeah. you stuff into your mouth. Mm-hmm. Yep. And told you that this is a non-smoking facility. Yeah. This is a non-smoking campus. And my response, and I thought I was being very funny. Did you scream states' rights into his face? No, 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 none of that. I just looked at him, and I, I thought this was, I still think this is hysterical. I said, well, officer, I'm not smoking. No, you did not. Idiot. Yep. And that's when he pulled out his citation book and wrote me a ticket. Hey. Yep. yep. Well deserved. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a little <laughs> bullshit because, as you know, we live in a college town, yeah. and people smoke all over that university. So you're saying since other people break the rules occasionally that you you have no proof of, but you're just saying that. Yeah. That I you... think that he was upset because what I was serving was a daycare facility. Mm-hmm. But I think that- And you were just spitting your mouth jaw <laughs> onto the ground at but this daycare. I don't think we can judge based on the building. It's all or nothing. Was it in full view of the children? No, 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 okay. no, no. I was, I was not that close to the building, but- I think it's I think it's bananas 
that I got this citation and that other people who smoke don't. I, I'm a little upset by it because I think it's unfair. But that's how my year's going. That's how my year's going. Wow. And we're going to move past it into a be- I'm going to try to take a note from Curtis's notebook and we're going to move past it and I'm going to paint some walls and feel better. Do you guys have any New Year's resolutions? I, I have one. What's Curtis, Do you have any? I mean, not really. Like I just I listened to Marcus talk for a while. So yeah, I'm just, just going to do all this house stuff that I've been putting off. So we got our, our boring oh, house. Oh, I'm so stuff. sorry. Do you have anything that's yeah. funny or interesting? No, not at all. I'm going to paint and I'm going to I'm going to do some tidying up. That's it. Cool. Yeah, my story's over. Marcus, do you have anything funny? I mean, uh, for us, Nick and I have made a gr- uh, together New Year's resolution to play at least 24 new board games this year. In 2019. In 2019, we've already played two. 24. Two new, two new games a month. Yep, two new games a month. Very nice. Also, I want to randomly do a combined hundred crunches in front of Nick, but only oh. one at a time. And it's got to be, it can't just be like, I just, mid-conversation, I want to get down and just do a crunch. I love this. And I want to do it a hundred times throughout the year. One crunch? <laughs> one crunch <laughs> each. And I just, it, just to like, I want to embarrass <laughs> you a little bit when we're in public. Uh-huh. But also, I just want it to become so normal that, I just that by the end of it. the year, you're just 100% used to it. Now, now I love this. Where, where does the embarrassment of Nick come in? Because he'll, he'll have to do a crunch imagine, in response or... Yeah, imagine he's at a wedding and mm-hmm. I find out he's going to a wedding. I just show up in jean oh, yeah. shorts and a tank top, walk in front of him, do a crunch, and Apropos then leave. nothing, show up, no, crunch, yeah, no out words. the door. And then out the door. It. It's yeah. a, I love this plan. That sounds like a really good New Year's resolution. <laughs> you have to do a I'm lot of. do a hundred crunches in 2019. <laughs> one at a time. You just have to randomly stalk Nick, see what he's doing, what he's what he's tweeting about. Yeah. You know, find yeah. out. Oh, he's at he's at Buffalo Wild Wings again. <laughs> yep. Boom, crunch. Crunch time. Just well, if I'm if I'm tweeting and I'm at Buffalo Wild Wings, that means I'm at work. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> so, you're, you're putting in work at Buffalo Wild Wings. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. my followers want to know, you know. I have a weekly Buffalo Wild Wings blog that I do that yeah. is all kind of goes live on Twitter first. Right. So, like, just be be professional. Is Fair enough. Is the okay. only thing I'm asking. He pretends he pretends he's there for trivia, but he's really live blogging. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, here's Nick, the, here's 2019. Then, do we ask you about any of your stuff? Yeah, I mean, I'm just I have the same resolutions I have every year. I want to cuss less and whistle more. Mm. Every single that you don't really cuss that much though. I'm trying to cut it. I'm trying to cut down on it. I think I do too much cussing. Oh, you're being a real shithead about it. <laughs> this is the thing. He's gonna get up on his fucking high horse. Yeah. You know <laughs> about well. I, every time we say a bad word, yeah. now watch it, I'm you just guys. Looking for something else to feel superior about. Yeah. Towards you two specifically. Yeah. I will never stop swearing. So you can you can just bank that for the rest of your life. I think I want to do a hundred crunches over the course <laughs> yeah, of the year. Randomly. I think that's my new New Year's resolution. One at a time, baby. <laughs> Well, do you guys want to do a podcast? Yeah, we probably should. Okay, cool. Let's do some In the News. The McElroy brothers of My Brother, My Brother, and Me fame, of Adventure Zone fame, Mm -hmm. of probably like, you know, 30 or 34 other podcasts Mm -hmm. are writing... A Marvel comic book. I don't like it. This is not their first foray into comic books. They wrote a graphic novel that came out in 2018 with illustrator Carrie Peach called The Adventure Zone. Mm -hmm. Here be Gerblins, I think is the name of it. That sounds right. Which was very, very well received. And now they're going to be writing a five-part limited series in conjunction with a big Thor crossover event, War of the Realms. They're writing War of the Realms Journey into Mystery. Yes. And I don't have a lot to say about this. 
And I only pointed out so that we could just say on record that the, hey, McElroy brothers, why don't you stay in your fucking lane? No yeah. joke. Why don't you stay in your fucking lane? Here's the thing. as a Making me break my, my cuss promise already. Wow, that didn't take long. January 9th. Here's the thing. I'm a greedy capitalist, and this is going to sell a whole lot of comic books, you dudes. Oh, you know that's true. It's going to sell so many comic books. And this is going to be a great series. So let's back it up a little bit. War of the Realms is like a big crossover. It's the send-off for Jason Aaron's Thor run. I've been, I've been yeah, heard I that know, one. I, I've been done hearing that one. So uh, this uh, supposedly he's been building to this. Who's Jason Aaron? What J- are you talking about? Jason Aaron's the writer of, of Thor. He's been writing Thor since 2012. Many will agree that it's one of the greatest Thor runs of all time. Mm-hmm. I would say that. It's my favorite Thor of all time. One of my favorite monthly comics still to this day. I agree. So allegedly, according to Jason Aaron, he's been building the entire time he's been writing this comic to this event, which is a massive. The War of Realms is Malekith, the Dark Elf, right, who is a longtime Thor villain. He's been in the movies and shit, so people who don't read the comics have seen this guy around. He is going to destroy the realms, of course, Midgard, or Earth, as we like to call it, as us Earthlings call it. Midgard is, is Earth. It, correct. That is the battleground. And it's, gonna, you know, it's classic crossover. Like always. Everything's going <laughs> to die if we don't save it. The yeah. end of literally everything. Do you believe comic writers when they say that they've been building to this the entire time? No. Mostly never. Oh, okay. But Jason Aaron, I'll take him at his word. I really like okay. this guy. So lie to me, and I'll—I don't care. Yeah, sure enough. Sure you were. Fair enough. It's fine. Uh, and so there's—that's the comic. And then these guys are, like you say, chipping in. There's going to be the main series. There's going to be a million spinoffs, classic crossover shit. Right. There's going to yeah. be a bunch of crossovers. There's going to be a bunch of related titles. The McElroy brothers. Not only the McElroy brothers, but I think also their dad. I think it's four people writing this one comic. Do you think they all get paid like an actual writer's salary or do they have to split it four ways? I wonder which one of them is actually writing it and which one of them are liars. Stay in your fucking lane, McElroy's. I can't wait to blaze on this book. Oh, I'm going to blaze on it so hard. I can't wait for this book to come out to blaze on it. You want to do podcasts or you want to do comic books? Come at me. Wow. Stay in your lane. I, I think these dudes are are, are going to make a lot of money for Vault of Midnight Incorporated. <laughs> <laughs> Write more comics, McElroy's. Do more podcasts. All right, fair enough. Fair enough. What else is in the news? I have some other in the news. I'm ready for it. DC Comics has joined Comixology Unlimited. Comixology is a platform for reading digital comics. Okay. Owned by Amazon. Who's that? Who's Amazon? I don't know. Who cares? Moving on. But this is a piece of software that you can put on your device, and it is a direct store and portal to read digital comic books. There have been any number of publishers that have uh, released pretty wide, uh, widely permissible rights to Comixology over the years since Comixology got off the ground. And this provided access to a huge backlog of titles for a lot of these companies. So, for instance, for paying this part of this unlimited uh, series fee, you can read like almost all of Saga. For instance, right, you can read a bunch of Marvel digital comics, uh, like really classic stuff and older stuff. It's it does not include like the most recent comic book releases for a yeah. lot of these publishers. Seems like they stagger it, and yep. yep. But before too long, that stuff is available on Comicsology and is available as part of this digital subscription plan called Comicsology Unlimited. And there was a holdout for a really long time. It was DC. DC did not have their entire back catalog on Comixology.com. Well, that changes now because DC has finally succumbed. And you can read things like Watchmen on that service. You can read All-Star Superman. Even some more recent stuff like Action Comics 1000 is available. 
And uh, this is big news because that was a big hole in the Comixology Unlimited service, and now it is it is that that hole got filled in with the, with the dirt that big that hole is, that is DC. <laughs> no offense. No, uh, which and this is you know also interesting because DC just launched their own streaming service, right? Streaming. Yeah. So this is like a TV yeah. uh, slash. Uh, you know, new original programming. It's all their animation. You can get this. It's like, you know, the Hulu or the Netflix of DC, right? You can get all their movies, all their cartoons. All yeah. their... I have not heard about this. Oh, yeah, yeah it totally. Lo- it actually looks kind of dope. Looks pretty cool. What's, uh, it, what's they've it called? Uh, DC Unlimited? DC Universe. Yeah, DC Universe. You're absolutely right. Uh, and they just got tons of stuff that's getting a lot of buzz. They're they're about to drop a Doom Patrol show. Yeah, their Teen Titan Teen... show is actually pretty well reviewed. People are loving it. But... They also let you get all their comic books on that platform as well. So it's a kind of a weird mix of mm-hmm. services, right? It's like your Comixology and Netflix mixed together and super DC centric. So it seems like DC's really embracing, you know, digital. They're going, yeah, here, yeah. here it is, everybody, which is something they hadn't done previous. And part of that package now is working with the biggest provider of digital comics in the world, which is at this point, Comixology. Totally makes sense. It's weird that they held out for so long. They were probably like a lot of companies. You know, Marvel at one point had uh, this vision that they would go their own way. Everybody would do yep. their own digital platform. That doesn't make a lot of sense. So. Yep, yep, yep. Better yep. just all. Better just let Amazon do all of it. You know. You know. Couldn't agree more. It's probably very convenient for comic book readers. Yeah. You know, I haven't. There, there's a lot of DC back issue stuff that's not available. So I would be curious if they're going to put some stuff on Comicsology. That maybe you can't find in in reprints. Well, that has always been the coolest thing about digital. For sure. Is that there are some stuff that unless you want to pay a bunch of money for it on eBay or something or any money at all on eBay, then you just you're not going to be able to read it. And if you're not somebody that is super into the collectability of the thing, you just want to follow the stories that it's kind of a neat resource to be able to just pop on Comixology and read the holes in your collection. That's something that digital's definitely got going for it. For and sure. like I used to be a long box warrior. I had long boxes in my house full of comics. Mm-hmm. And at some point I just was like, hey, I don't want this stuff in my house anymore. I don't want the clutter. And I sold them all. Is that yeah. a is that a term long box warrior? Is I that... just I just came up with okay, that. Nice. It's Very not nice. a term. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a definitely term. not definitely a term. term. I was a long box warrior and <laughs> You know, I did it for a while. I just didn't want the clutter in my house. <laughs> and now I have I have the opportunity to read comics because I do the podcast. Mm. Right? But if I wasn't doing the podcast, I could see the appeal of something, especially now that DC is on there, where I can just sit at home and click a comic book that I want to read and pay a monthly fee and get my comics that way because I'm just not interested in keeping a physical copy of that book in my home forever anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just not something I feel the need to do. So you're not really a long box warrior anymore. No, I, I traded in my armor, you know, yeah. and now now I'm just a... You're a long box veteran. You're a long I'm a, box... <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. What's the term? I don't know. Now he's a... Now he's just a long box asshole. <laughs> I don't know. Your swearing is not going Shit. great. No, you're right. You're, you're, Shit, you're right. he says. <laughs> I gotta get it together. You know, the other interesting thing about this is that we have no idea how many digital comics are being sold every month. We really don't have a sense of the size of the market. It's been years since anybody has done like a proper analysis of how many digital comics are getting read on a month by month basis or how much money the market is worth. So we'll we'll get some of that. They'll give a dollar amount. 
you know, every now and then. I've seen numbers. Uh, it's actually, I and I was looking, it's been a long time since we've even seen that. Oh, okay. And we definitely don't have it, because there's no third party that's calculating it, because the publishers don't provide it, and because it's going around Diamond Comics, which is the big distributor for almost all comic books, Diamond is a resource to kind of provide all of this data to the world about what's happening in single-issue comics and graphic novel sales, right? But... Diamond is cut out of the loop on this, and Amazon is not a company that shares data about anything almost ever for any reason. So it's this weird black box, and it is definitely something that is affecting the industry and is going to continue to to affect the industry as time goes on, but we don't have a sense of how or to what extent yet, and that's interesting. It's kind of interesting that Diamond, with all of their power, because Diamond does have power in this industry. Sure. They're essentially the only comic book distribution center mm-hmm. um, that they don't have more power to kind of be like, hey, Marvel and DC, we, we're the ones who take care of all of the logistics for your books. Like, we don't want you putting stuff out digitally. Now, they tried. They did. did they tried. They it had, just didn't work. They just bungled it. Yeah, they, they launched their own digital service, and we even at one point when we did an e-commerce website, mm-hmm. you know, do they still call it e-commerce? When we sold stuff on the internet or at least attempted to through our vaultofmidnight.com page, there was a link to the Diamond Digital Comics page, right? I can't remember what the service was called. I can't either. Um, but it was clunky and ugly and there's no money to to keep upgrading the infrastructure and, you know, making it look better. So, yeah, yeah, it totally fell it, it didn't last it, long at it all. It folded and was not very effective. Yep. Yeah, it was a bummer. And for us, that was a way that a retailer could maybe get anything at all out of this process. Because if somebody went through our website and bought digital comics through the diamond arm of digital comics, then we would get a, a little piece of it. A couple cents. Just like, yeah. a, or like nothing, like <laughs> yeah. no money at all. But we got at least yeah. something from it. And it was a really neat idea, but Diamond is not a software company. Yeah, and, as we know. And they, they just totally, you know, it, it did not go well. Because, like, it's concerning for retailers, but it's got to be concerning for Diamond, too. Yeah, I mean, know, I mean, ultimately, yeah. it's the only thing that, uh, in, in the world of single-issue comics, that Diamond doesn't get a piece of whether it goes well or not. Yeah. Something that's always interesting about Diamond is that like whether or not comics fail or succeed, like they're always going to be okay unless it's a digital comic. That is something that they just don't see any money from. Yep. Anyway, so DC joins the ranks of Comixology. We will see what happens. Actually, we won't see what happens because it's a black box. It'll be a total secret and now it exists. And we'll never, never. So gentlemen. Tell me. So Tom King, famed DC Batman writer. Tom King? Super Skull favorite author. Oh, okay. Um, You know, in his biography and something that he talks about somewhat frequently is that uh, before he was writing comics, he worked for the CIA and did some work in Iraq. He was an analyst uh, for the CIA or as a caseworker for the CIA. What was it? Do you know what his title was? Uh, I don't know what his title. I think he uses the word handler. He was a handler. His job was to take military people in the military and link them up with people who were working in terrorist cells and to try to infiltrate those Provide intelligence. Yep, or and provide intelligence. Yep. Got it. Um, but over the holidays, a, a Tumblr blog came out kind of disputing this fact with some very loose uh, arguments. Um, and Tom King, being, being the awesome guy he is, didn't beat around the bush. He just kind of. Well, now, what was, what was the nature of the dispute? So the nature of the dispute was that the person, the author of this post, had written to the CIA to ask them to confirm or deny if Tom King ever worked for the CIA. And the CIA wrote back, and they have like a little form that they send back. Mm -hmm. And it says, um, this person, we have no recollection or no uh, 
account of this person working for the CIA. That's box one. Yeah, there's a couple boxes checked yeah. on this form, right? Box two, and that one's checked. We but, have no record of this person working for the CIA yeah, or something. Check. They check that one off. And the second one is, is like, we do not have authorization from this person to release if they did or did not work for the CIA. Right. That one is also checked. Right, yeah. And then the third one is like, we confirm that this person did work for the CIA, and that one is not checked. Yeah. So first of all, it's wild that you could just write to the CIA. I could be like, "Did Curtis work for the CIA?" <laughs> yeah, and I feel no. I want to get that And they that would letter. just drone strike you immediately. <laughs> exactly. That would be the letter that you got in return. First of all, like the CIA doesn't have to tell the truth by any means. Do they have to tell you if someone's working for them or not? So like, let's just acknowledge that fact. Second, this dude did this like three years ago, right when Tom King kind of came out into the scene. Yeah. Well, and his whole thing, his whole lead up in this fucking blog post is. The, yeah. Not Tom King, but not the, guy, Tom King. The, the guy who's taking issue with it. Exactly. is like, this Tom King guy, who kept they kept mentioning that he worked for the CIA, you know, and that really- Really st- stuck in my craw. Yeah, I hated that. Like, why can't he, why do they even got to mention it over and over and over again? So I was like, fuck Tom King. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, what, dude? You know, and he was like, and then he goes on to say further that, like, you know, comic fans demand that their writers- be a rock star in some way other than writing comics because this one guy worked for the CIA. His whole premise, his whole build up to why he wants to take down this liar Tom King. So his big argument, his big argument, and it's something that is a problem, is that what he is claiming is that what Tom King is doing is something called stolen valor. And stolen valor is when someone claims that they're in the military or it, you know, and the CIA is not even the military, so it's not fully applicable. But someone who's in the military claims that the, you know that they served when they didn't, yeah, or that their their achievements in the military are not what they were. And this is a thing that happens, and it does suck when it happens because people try to use a fake military history to like get better jobs or get praise from the public. And there are groups that go out and like find these people out. But Tom King's response to all this kind of puts it to bed. Because he, he went on Twitter. First, he posts a photo of himself in Iraq. He's armed. He looks like a CIA agent. And the second thing was is that when he wrote Sheriff of Babylon, he had to send that book into the CIA so that they could cross-reference it and make sure that like subconsciously he wasn't putting things into that book that was leaking CIA secrets. Right. And this is a thing that like... Or confidential information. Exactly. Things that are not available to the public. And this is the thing that authors who have military experience or work for the CIA or FBI have to do if they write a book of any nature. Even when they're no longer with that agency, correct? correct? Yeah. That's right. And so he showed some of the email correspondence showing that the CIA had approved the book. Mm-hmm. And, and these are two... I mean, you put the two together and... There's no doubt that Tom King at one point worked for the CIA. That's interesting. It is interesting. That's interesting. Tom King, great writer, worked for the CIA. All right, is that the news? That's the news, baby. We did it. We did it, everybody. Hello, podsters. No! Thanks for listening to the Super Skull Show. We, every week, read all the comics in the world, and then we tell you all about them, only the best ones. But we need money. And if you could find it in your heart to go to Super Skull Show backslash donate or just slash donate and donate a little bit of cash to keep the lights on, we'd appreciate it. Podsters. Hey, podsters. Hey, podsters. Hey, you guys are podsters? I'm a podster. I'm a podster. I'm a super podster. (laughs) Marcus told me on the walk over today that I was the reason he is in therapy. 
Wow. Which is a pretty sick burn. Sick burn. In fact, I said that both you and Rachel were the reason I'm in therapy. Yeah, just well, to, and to I know make you're. I know you're being clear. silly, but yeah. it's like it's a good, it's a, it's a good burn. No, honesty burns like piss sometimes. Yep, it's true. So there it is. All right, I'm Nick ready. hurts my feelings so much. I have a scar armor, is what I call it. Wow, <laughs> scarmer, scarmer. Did you guys read any comic books this week? Dude, I read so many Marcus, great comic let me books. Stop this you right week. there, you son of a gun. I read the comics that matter this week, and it's Conan, Conan, Conan the Barbarian. Conan the Barbarian Ye- came out re- la- last week? Uh-huh. And now you still want to talk about Conan. I do. Yeah. I read it again. I read it last week, and then I read it again this week. In point of fact, Curtis wanted to do an hour on Conan. All Conan. He laid out a plan that was like, let's get into our pajamas. Let's all read the Con- the new Conan comic a few times together. Yes. I'll let- make breakfast, Conan-themed. Let- let's read a bunch of old Conan. Mm-hmm. Let's play a Conan uh, board game. Yeah. And was there anything else? We watched the Conan movie in the background. Yes. We'll listen to the Basil Polidorus Conan the movie soundtrack while we hold hands and eat breakfast. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's like a whole, I had a whole itinerary. It's laminated. Yeah. You know, we'll do it. We'll get to it at some point in the okay. future. But um, Which which Conan movie were you going to have us watch? We were going to watch the original uh, first Arnold Schwarzenegger Conan movie, which doesn't get everything right, but it's still enthusiastic and I do love it. What do you mean Right. So, you know, he make they, they make Conan a little more meat-headed than I would prefer. Oh, okay. So they get mostly everything right, though. I prefer you know? my Jason Momoa Conan. I also like that, but I have problems with it as well. They get, again, <laughs> a lot of things right, few things uh, also uh, grossly incorrect. So, so. The, the, the point is, is that you want to talk about Conan, and so we shall. So much. I love Conan so much. It's my favorite thing ever. I was a young person who got into Conan and never got out of Conan. I... Uh, I've played video games. I've watched the films. I worship the music mm-hmm. that has been made for it. I've read the soft cover <laughs> books, short stories, Robert E. Howard. I've read hundreds upon hundreds of Conan comics and magazines. I mean, I'm fucking into it. You I mean, own action figures. You've been ready for this, ridiculous. for this book to release. Oh, my goodness. It's been a dream of mine. I, th- yes. Uh, when they announced this book, I l- was crapping my shorts. And it's written by one of your favorite writers, this the, new book. The perfect writer, Jason Aaron, Yeah, who many years ago was like, man, if there's one dude, if it could ever happen, please, could Jason Aaron write Conan? And so he did. And here we are. And here we are. And here we are. So I think we need, there's something that we need to establish up front. Is it Conan or Conan? I say Conan. I say Conan. Okay. Conan mm-hmm. the then Barbarian. That's, then that's what I'll say. And I'm definitely right. Because I've heard different things. But we're saying Conan. How how's the other way people pronounce it? Conan. Conan. Un. There's but there's an A at the end. I understand that. Okay. But I, I just I, as long as we are consistent, I think Conan sounds cooler. It sounds more barbarian. Yes, totally. Barbarian. Is it a barbarian? Okay. It rhymes. We're all on the we're all on the same page. Yeah. So we'll talk about we'll talk a little bit about Conan. We'll talk a little bit about this new issue. Yes. But. We probably I don't we can't do any of this if we don't talk about Robert E. Howard. We got to do it. So Robert E. Howard is the original creator writer of Conan. Uh, this Conan. See now I'm saying Conan now. Man, just do what you feel. Uh, this character was created, you know, a hundred almost a hundred years ago. Nineteen thirty. Well, let's get there. Let's get there. Let's find out. All right. Let's all learn together. Okay. So who's Robert E. Howard? is what you were going to ask me. I was going to say, Nick, who the hell is Robert E. Howard? Robert E. Howard, born in 1906 in Texas. And not fun Texas. <laughs> is there such a thing? It's not like in 
Houston, Texas in 1906 with the coffee shops and the no. and you know the the art galleries. It's it was hard scrabble Texas. It was hard living Texas. Like you couldn't even dig in the ground. It was so hard. Yeah, it seems like a tough, dusty, sad place to live. So Te- like Texas. So Texas around especially around the turn of the century. I can't stress this enough. And not only that, he grew up like traveling all over tiny little towns in Texas, places on like the outskirts of civilization. Turn of the century Texas is like, even for turn of the century America, right. it's still 50 to 100 years behind Yeah, in terms of like what life feels like. The entire country is made out of jagged stone. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and dry tumbleweeds. So his dad was a traveling physician. So they're constantly on the move. The family is like, always moving and there's a series of oil booms and busts during this this time in texas so these towns would like get raised up really really quickly and all of these people that are trying to get money would move in very very quickly sometimes with their family sometimes they're just like opportunistic people trying to make a bunch of money and then the oil boom would completely destroy these towns and destroy the lives of everybody that lived in these towns and because he, because Robert E. Howard's family kept moving from town to town, it would usually like follow the tide of these booms and busts. So he got to see some ugly shit. He got to see some people living under very, very like hard conditions. So this itinerant lifestyle is like we'd moving all over Texas, moving all over these small little towns. They, it, it seemed to instill some stuff in Robert E. Howard that you could really see in his writing. And the first one is that. Life is tough and life is pretty nasty. So his father also had like this predilection for get rich quick schemes because he's he's seeing all of these like hucksters and people that are uh, taking advantage of all these people in these small towns. And his dad loved to get rich, get rich quick scheme. So Howard got to see firsthand from his immediate family, like this kind of ugly side of humanity, like this, this greed. Right. Sure. So then we have. Uh, not only that, but also from this era and from the place that he lived in, he had a fascination with violence. He saw a lot of violence firsthand. He saw, and, and he, because of the, the people that he met in these towns, he saw these instances of lynchings. He saw raids that were on and from these local Native American communities. He, he was also really into what at that time was the most popular sport in the country, which is boxing, Right. Yeah. No, you're you're down on your luck. You're working really hard. You're going to go watch some people punch each other in the face. Yeah. So all of this kind of paints a picture of a dude that is really obsessed with physical domination. He's really into strength and like the physical dominating of another human being. And that and that actually becomes really, really important to his work later on. He's also obsessed with books and he's got this urge to write and to read from a really young age. And we could probably chalk that up to the fact that he's always moving. He doesn't have time to make friends or to meet a lot of people in these communities. So his buddies are books and are writers. And he learned how to write from his very favorite types of stories, which are like the Jack London pulp magazine adventure stories. That makes a lot of sense. You know, you're this kind of lifestyle. Can you imagine, you know, looking out into the world and it looks the way it does and you read one of these books and I mean, it's even now that happens to you when you read a book, but imagine back then it's got to be like the greatest escape, right? Totally. And totally informs who you're going to be. So he always wants to write and he starts to mimic the writers that like like almost all writers do. Like he starts to mimic the styles of the the writers that he's really into. And he finally got published in a book in a magazine called Weird Tales, 
which is a struggling pulp magazine. He's 18 years old. And the first thing that he got published was a story called Spear and Fang. And it was about cavemen. And he seemed to be a pretty prolific writer. He had lots and lots of poems and short stories published, even over the next couple of years and over the course of his career, just had a ton of stuff published. So I've never read a Robert E. Howard poem, but I now after you know doing some research, I really want to see what his were his poems set in these worlds that his fiction were, you know. Oftentimes they were. Okay. One of the earliest uh, kind of experiments that he did with the Cole the Conqueror in Conan stuff, Cole the Conqueror was another barbarian that would eventually turn into Conan. It was a poem set in that universe. Got it. Yeah, so, uh, but that would come much, much later. Like at this point, he's just writing to write. And eventually, and he would also, you know, when he's between the ages of like 18 and 21, he would quit writing on and off because he never made very much money at it. And he would always, he would like try to, at one point he decides he's going to be a bookkeeper. And at one point he's going to go back to school and he's, he tries all these different things, but he always comes back to writing as a way to relieve stress. The dude has just got the bug. He's got it in his bones that he wants to write fiction. And at one point, he gets the measles, and that takes him off of work. And he can't do anything right now. He's off his feet. And he finishes the stories that, it, that he's been working on for a really long time. He had the idea for it years ago. It's called The Shadow Kingdom. And The Shadow Kingdom might be one of the earliest examples anywhere of what we now call sword and sorcery fiction. Yeah, a lot of people regard this as the, the story that... Yeah. Where this, where this phrase is coined. So, and... The, I think this is the most fascinating thing about Robert E. Howard, right? It's easy now to look back at Conan and uh, to all of the stuff that kind of were spawned by and influenced by Conan and to see all the tropes and to see the paint-by-numbers stuff and all the cliches. But there is no precedent to the type of stuff that uh, Howard is writing when he wrote The Shadow Kingdom in 1927. There is... Almost there is like there's fantasy to a certain extent and there are adventure stories set in medieval times, but it's never something that has coalesced into like one cohesive world in the way that Robert E. Howard did it in 1927. Marcus, you look like your brain's turning. I, I'm trying to think of examples that I would qualify as sword and sorcery fiction Yeah. before that time period. I, def- I challenge you. I mean, the, I think the Arthurian legend yeah. might qualify. But, but that's really the only thing that like pops to mind immediately. Yep. Because but that's it, a little straightforward. That doesn't have the sorcery, right? I disagree. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, so and we'll talk about what kind of what qualified the Arthurian stuff cleanly falls out of sword and sorcery as we will come to define okay. it. But we will define it. I promise. <laughs> right on. So this dude, it's so what what is he what is he coming up with here? And we'll talk about what sword and sorcery is in a second. He's really in Howard is really into history and historical fiction. He loves this shit. But he he cannot he doesn't have the time or the resources to like make an accurate historical fiction right, story. He can't do proper research. He's not an academic. He doesn't have access to any of the stuff. So, and you got to remember, he love. I mean, so he loves Vikings. He loves Arthurian legend. He loves Celtic myth. Like all of this stuff is seeping into his brain. But he's not a scholar of any of it, right? So we are at this point ten years away from the Hobbit. And we are 27 years away from Lord of the Rings, right? There is no precedent for completely made up fantasy worlds contemporarily written and making any money in the fiction market. Like it just doesn't exist at this point. 
He's also really into Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft. And these are guys that are writing like this big, fantastic kind of like horror based fiction. And all of this stuff kind of like mixes together to this story about Cull, who is a basically is a precursor to Conan. He is a barbarian who wanders the world and solves problems by killing it with his sword for the most part. He's the king of Atlantis at some point. Something like that. Yeah. So, and, he, and Cole lives in a world a lot like the one that Conan would inhabit, and eventually, and, and Weird Tales just eats it up. Weird Tales publishes it, like, immediately. So, Sword and Sorcery is basically born out of this short story, and he doesn't call it that. Conan doesn't call it that. It gets named much later. But Robert E. Howard doesn't call it that. Robert E. Howard does not call it that. Yeah. This is the name that other writers apply to stories, specifically when they're trying to figure out what do we call the type of stuff that Robert E. Howard wrote because nobody else was writing anything like this at the time. So we can distinguish it from fantasy in a few different ways. The focus is usually sharper, and it's usually about one character, and it's about one character's struggles and his triumphs, whereas high fantasy is about... Uh, world imperiling crises for the most part. At least that's like the thing that everything kind of pivots around is this big overarching thing that needs to be stopped, this evil that needs to be stopped. Sword and sorcery stuff is about one dude trying to do a thing. Smaller stories. Smaller stories, more sharper focused on like one protagonist. Also, and this is really a big one, there is lots of action and lots of violence and there's lots of romance and half-clothed women and no-clothed women and lots of bombastic shit. Like there is, this is unique to fantasy at this point. And this is, he's borrowing from other like pulp magazine and adventure stuff. And the hero is usually kind of an asshole or at least he's not a clear-cut good guy. There's a little bit more nuance to him. There is a little bit more, uh, you know, he he does some things that are morally questionable, even though at heart he might be our protagonist and he might be good in the end. Yeah, he might break a few eggs to to enjoy a survival omelet. Yep. Yeah, for sure. So the name Sword and Sorcery gets applied later from these two writers who are going back and forth trying to figure out what to call this stuff. And but, but the one thing that is agreed is that, like, we have to we have to name it something because it's hugely influential and nobody else had done it before. And his name just keeps getting bandied about by these scholars and writers. Like, what do we call the stuff that Robert E. Howard was making? And Sword and Sorcery is eventually what they landed on. At any rate, the character Cole never took off. It really did not have much traction. And it took like five years before the first Conan story would be published. And the first Conan story that got published was called The Phoenix and the Sword, and that was actually a reworked Cole story. What a great story. Yeah. But before we go any further, we should probably talk about, we keep saying Conan. Who who even is that? Who's Conan? I would love to tell you about Conan. I wish you would. Tell us about Conan, though. So... Conan, excuse me. <laughs> most of the stories that involve Conan the Barbarian take place in a pseudo-historical Hyborian age of in the time of man. And what does this mean? This means that the You just Hy- said so many nonsense words. I know. And I'm gonna I'm gonna say a lot more. Okay, cool. So just get ready for it. The Hyborian Age takes place after the destruction of Atlantis. After the oceans drank Atlantis. Yes. Yes. And and Crawl, the or Call, the character we were just talking about, takes place in the age before the Hyborian Age. So it all links together in, in one timeline. It's all one. It's so all Cole one, lives in the same world he as lives, Conan. Correct, but he lives in the age before the Hyborian Age, in which Atlantis ruled the world. Oh God, I can already hear people reaching for their phones to throw them into the Atlantis. Yeah, I'm gonna and I'm gonna get a little deep with it. So, 
The Hyborian Age takes place at the fall, in between the fall of Atlantis and before the seeds of any modern civilization are planted. Before okay. recorded modern, modern history. history. That's right. Roughly 10,000 B.C. There is some debate on this, Curtis Sullivan. <laughs> but all the cool people that know what's up say 10,000 B.C. That being said, the book The Hyborian Heresies by author Dan Ripke proposes that the Hyborian Age should actually take place farther in the past, prior to the last glacial period, around 3200 B.C. Ripke can eat it. There are so many books written on this. And that's really the point. And that's the point. Is that this has captured the imaginations to the point that people are, are writing books. Scholarly works. Just about the fake world that Robert E. Howard made up for these short stories for a pulp magazine that nobody read. I challenge anyone who is interested in this, and it is fascinating. It's pretty cool. To go onto the internet and search Conan scholarly article, like Mm -hmm. I did last night, (laughs) you will be blown away on how much stuff there is. Either way. Um, Now, due to the rough climate of where Conan and his tribe are from, they are well known for being like hardy and having unnatural skills when it comes to like martial prowess and hunting and tracking yeah this is what this is the baseline of what conan grows up with because they're growing up in a, in a tough environment that's right and they can they're the best trackers yeah and they're the best hunters because you have to be able to, to survive and they're just kind of hardy people because they grow up in this cold climate no and throughout the fiction right when anybody you know when people find out he's from samaria they're like shit exactly that's a tough place to live yeah yeah, yeah. right that sounds like texas that sounds <laughs> like <laughs> so no matter the conan story and there have been many one thing is always true. He was born on a battlefield, the son of a blacksmith. This is a fundamental element of who Conan is. Those two things are, those are tied to Those to are tied biography. to him. He was born into battle. Mm-hmm. Um, and while his childhood was a rough one, and much because much of his clan is slaughtered at his birth, um, Conan is, becomes a respected warrior by the age of 15. But there's one thing that separates Conan from other people in his clan, and that is that he is born with a wanderlust. He's got to he's got to wander. He must see the world. He must see what's over the next mountain. This is one of my favorite characteristics of Conan, he, that his tribe it's anathema to them to leave Samaria. They just won't do it. They it's not even discussed. It's it's such a, a unusual thing. Mm-hmm. And when people see Conan out in the world, they're they're just blown away. A Sumerian what? are you doing outside of your land? It's yeah. it's so cool. And this is due, I think it's attributed to his birth. He sees battle. He must see the next battle. Mm-hmm. But here's something you have to know about Conan. Conan is a grade A boss at anything he attempts to do. <laughs> yeah. Right? And he has had a number of jobs throughout his life. Not only is he a barbarian, he's also the greatest thief and greatest outlaw. And he's an amazing mercenary and leader. He's the best pirate that has ever <laughs> sailed the seas. Yeah. Whatever Conan puts his mind to, Conan is going to be great No, at. he's good with a spear. He's good with a bow. Exactly. He's good at climbing. He's good at leading people. He's good at following people. He's, he, what do you got? Yeah, he's the an excellent baker. He's a very good accountant. Heck yeah. But what separates Conan, other than his wanderlust, from these kind of like jobs that you would likely attribute to people who are not so great is that Conan has a very distinct sense of chivalry right from the beginning when Howard writes him. If it's between saving a woman in distress or getting a pile of gold, Conan chooses to save the human every time. Oh. Right? He is 
always, even though, and when we hear about him robbing or pirating and, and looting ships, it's always done what we would say now is off camera. Mm-hmm. It's always told when that he does the nasty. When shit. he does the nasty stuff, we never see it. Um, and, and that is a, a really interesting thing about Conan. And it's a trademark for Howard is that we, we want our guy to be a bad boy. And this is something that fantasy authors still do today is we want our main character to be perceived as a bad boy, but we don't actually want to spend time showing it because it's unnecessary. Yeah, they talk about him being like drunk or losing his sword, but they don't really ever show that. They'll show him in the bar having drinks. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they won't put that on camera, which is awesome. And in the end, I think the thing that makes Conan such a great character is that while he is an amazing warrior, and the big thing is he calls on his life experiences doing all these other things to give himself advantages. Right, so perhaps he has to fight another group of pirates. Well, I know everything about these boats because I once sailed these boats. And so what makes Conan interesting is that unlike a lot of other fantasy characters or just literary characters in general, it is the things that he has done before that moment. His life experience. Yeah, that shape how he's going to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. And that is something that we had not really seen in literature at that point, especially kind of fantasy pulp literature. No, and it's stuff I picked up on early reading these books. It's like Conan, as he's doing shit, you're like, Conan's getting more sweet right now. I'm going to read a story down the road where maybe this particular skill is going to reveal itself and save Conan's ass. Yeah. So cool. So ultimately, this character, under in Howard's lifetime, there are only 18 short stories that are published featuring Conan and some poems also. Yeah, it's not a lot of material for how long this character has endured. Yeah. Right? And although it was the most successful character that Howard saw, that's still only in the scheme of like pulp magazine success. It was never hugely famous. It was never hugely popular during Howard's lifetime. And his lifetime was pretty short as it happened. So Howard struggled throughout his 20s for lots of different reasons. He's always out of money. And Weird Tales, which is like primarily where a lot of his money is coming from, is constantly not paying him. Like, they owe him money throughout most of his 20s, it turns out. And his mother had a bunch of health problems, and Howard was really, really close to his mom, maybe even pathologically close to his mom. Like, maybe it was a bit of a problem. He had one romantic partner, as far as anybody could tell, and it was a pretty strained relationship and was, like, always kind of distant. And it ended when she started dating his best friend because they weren't because her and Howard weren't really seeing each other anymore. And that put a strain on things further. And that's as close as he got to any sort of like close romantic relationship. He was also just kind of regarded as a weird dude. He was just people that knew him kind of thought he was strange and off-putting. Uh, he had this really sharp mind and he and the writers that he communicated with and the people that read his work were always impressed by his mind. But he was uh, in person. He struck people as like really strange and, and kind of off. Yeah, he would change in the drop of a dime and he'd be doing this thing and then pick a new thing to do or learn or get excited about. Uh, and there's also stories that he was being told some of these stories by a ghost, even some of the Conan stories and the call stories. Mm-hmm. So. There's a lot of, yeah, he seemed like a dude with a an interesting personality. Yeah, and, and was almost certainly depressed and mm-hmm. almost certainly was, uh, you know, be, and the dude had a, had a tough life. He came, he came up pretty For tough. For sure. 
His mother suffered from tuberculosis, and like we said, he was very, very close with his mother, and she slipped into a coma in 1936. And Howard, after she uh, slipped into this coma, uh, Robert E. Howard asked the attending caretaker if, if she was ever going to wake up. He was told that she was not. So he went out into the driveway, got into his car, and he shot himself. He was 30 years old. So this is not a complete reckoning of Howard's life by any means. Um, it, it would also be lame not to point out that Robert E. Howard had some really shitty racial views. Uh, he relied on uh, stereotypes that fit that, that seeped into his writing like pretty constantly, a little bit less towards the end of his life, but they were very, very present. So it might have improved, but some of this shit was really backwards and, and hateful. He would like really frequently use race as a shorthand for character and in ways that were really ignorant, really hurtful. Villains were often people of color. Um, and we, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't point out that that sucks. Of course. But his career, though really it only lasted a little bit more than a decade, it was really, really prolific. He wrote a lot of stuff besides Conan. Towards the end of his life, he wrote almost exclusively Western stories and had stopped writing Conan entirely. Um, he had a really interesting friendship with H.P. Lovecraft that we don't have time to get into at all. And he was never commercially successful. And even though he had some success in pulp magazines, they were always the shitty pulp magazines. Sure. They were always the trashy pulp magazines, not even considered like the top tier good ones. So overall, I think Howard is like a really fascinating, troubled dude that wanted to get out of his life so badly that he invented an entire new mode of fiction in order to do so. And that is pretty remarkable. And maybe that's what made this stuff so, re- like his stuff and his writing, that might be what made it so relatable to, to dorks like us and to nerds for the next hundred years, is that he just has the, the search for escape and for power and strength and for like learning new stuff that uh, so many people that are drawn to genre fiction and to fantasy fiction in the first place, it's just oozing out of Howard's work. Like all, you just cannot read that stuff without being hit in the face with these like yearnings to be a little bit stronger and to be a little, and to get away from wherever you are. And it gave a framework for how people like think about fiction and how they, to get excited about fiction for so many writers and so many readers in a way that's pretty remarkable. And it's it's not often that you could like lay so much at the feet of one writer. And Robert E. Howard was one of those writers, even though he wasn't always critically well regarded regarded, excuse sure. me. Sure. Yeah. And even though, you know, much of the success of his characters and worlds, you know, came long after he passed away. Yeah. So yeah. No, I, I that was the stuff that spoke to me immediately upon reading Conan as a young man was just that adventure in in the the change of scenery. Conan was always in a different place doing different shit. That immediately resonated with me. So. Yeah. What, what do you think it was, like, as a young man reading Conan, what was it about the character that was so appealing to you? Like, you were talking earlier about uh, how Conan had this, um, even though he was a barbarian, he would kick ass and kill people and drink and do all this stuff. He definitely had a morality. Like, one of the earliest Conan stories I read, you know, it's maybe, you know, 1980 or something, one of the first stories I read is he he's coming up over a hill and he sees a guy beset by three other dudes and he doesn't know this guy and he goes to this little you know gymnastics in his head really quick like well I don't want to die I just got to have a battle but hey these guys are clearly assholes you know three on one is bullshit all right here we go he jumps in and helps save this dude right and immediately you think 
that's cool, that's relatable. He's not like this over-the-top good guy. You know, he does some, you know, he wants to stay alive, and this guy's a stranger to him. They have no connection. But, man, it was just really fucking cool that it was moral without being, you know, it seemed realistic in a way. It's kind of right? like a... Like a- pragmatic morality almost right you know because you know the world's hard right in conan's world he's fighting weird demons every day he's it's life or death right you gotta think like what do if i jump in here (laughs) yeah i'm 18 years old this might be the end of me so so obviously curtis i'm sure that you read the stories as they were originally published in uh 1927 correct Yes. so if you had but eventually they were released as comic books Uh uh-huh yeah. And was how long had they been in comic book form by the time that you got to them? So the first, first issue of Conan and the Barbarians is 1970. So I, I didn't probably read my first one until 1980, so 10 years later. Mm-hmm. And there had already been a cabillion Marvel. It was just, they had Conan, the Barbarian, and they, you know, in, in 1970. And then 1974, they released the book that changed my life, which is the magazine-sized Conan, which was oh. Savage Sword of Conan. That was, my uncle gave me a big old stack of those. So it hit comics pretty hard. I mean, there's a pretty wide berth of Conan comics that have been produced since then. Oh, it's just so many. So, you know, we should say, like, right off the bat, you know, I compiled some statistics here. There's over a a thousand issues of Conan comics across all publishers (laughs) since 1970. So so originally it was published in Mexico uh, in 1952 is the first Conan comics. And it ran almost continuously, you know, to the late 60s in Mexico before it started in English in 1970. So we've been reading Conan comics or the world has been reading Conan comic books since 1952, mm-hmm. which is unbelievable, right? That's one of the, you know, that's, that's as published as long as almost, you know, your golden, and, you know, your golden age classic superhero sure, shit, sure. right? So uh, 67 years we've been reading Conan comic books. Wow. Totally nuts, right? So, uh, yeah, I, I want to find some of that, um, some of those original Conan comics and see what those look like because that sounds awesome. The ones published in Mexico? In Mexico, yeah, yeah. right? Uh but, uh, yeah, I came to it in around 1980 with Savage Sword of Conan, oversized magazine books published by Curtis Comic Books, Curtis Magazines, mm-hmm. which was an imprint of Marvel, right? It was their way around the Comics Code Authority. So Comics Code Authority was like this kind of draconian, you know, uh, rating systems where you couldn't show, like, violence or, say, crime. Basically, or... you couldn't show Conan. Couldn't yeah, show Conan. Exactly. Conan illegal yeah. with the Comics Code, <laughs> yeah. right? And this comic just blew me away. I mean, right out of the gate, first issue is just unbelievably awesome. And, you know, I'm 10 years old, you know, or nine years old, so it had, you know, boobs and, like, people getting their head cut off. So that was probably pretty appealing to a young boy. Uh, But, man, it it was just so, so cool, and we wouldn't be talking without it, so. Now, you've said this before, that that this is your intro to comics. Yes. Conan. And this is... This begins your love affair with the whole medium, to a large extent. Yeah, this. I, so I didn't. I wasn't aware of comic books at all before this. I at least I don't. I have no memory of knowing what a comic book was until I saw Savage Sword of Conan. So that was, you know, after I read all these fifty times, my uncle would, you know, he was the comic dude of the family, so he would lay other stuff on me. Yeah. And was it like an instant love Immedi- for Conan? Immediately. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Just no question. And I, you know, I, I, it's easier to remember. I've read so much of it since then. It's easy to like say I keyed in on these certain things, which you know I don't have that perfect of a memory of it. But I just loved how atypical Conan was. I loved it that he wasn't afraid to do jobs that seemed shitty. 
Mm-hmm. Like he was prepared to like have the glory and be the king or whatever, but he'd also get down in the fucking muck. He would be in the bar. He would be, you know, I don't know what if it was, a, what do you call it, a blue collar yeah. guy. Yeah, you know what I mean? He's very much a blue collar superhero. Yeah. I will agree with that. Yeah, he's not afraid to like hang out with the riffraff and, you know, get his hands dirty and shit. Yeah. Um, so that's the stuff that stays with me. Now, did I pick up on that when I was like nine years old? I don't know. It might have been some dragons and some demons and but stuff. This but is, this is why it's endured, right? Like this, this is the eternal appeal of Conan for a certain type of reader, and pro, and also for a certain type of kid, right? It's it's all the stuff that we just talked about, like all of the the hard scrabble shit that Howard injected into the character and into the storytelling. All of these comic book writers picked up on all that stuff because you know to generalize, they probably you know shared a lot of those pieces of pathos and and in concerns and then right. that infects all of the comic books and then all of us comic book readers be, absorb it at the exact same in the exact same way well and also if you, just to take it outside the world of comic books the effect it's had on fantasy literature as a whole so i mean this idea of the barbarian you know we see it throughout the 80s and almost all 80s fantasy literature has a barbarian character thinking of big book series like Dragonlance, Wheel of Time. Um, and then it, it enters into Dungeons & Dragons and is cemented at that point into fantasy literature because we have millions of people playing barbarians, mm-hmm. right? And that barbarian class, that that archetype of the barbarian, while it existed before Conan, it was Conan who cemented, like, this is a thing that we are going to explore in the realm of fantasy. Yeah. And it's it's big in comics, but I think it's it's just as big in, in literature and role-playing games and board games and video games. All of that is because I don't know if we would have such a barbarian culture when it comes to fantasy if it wouldn't be for these books. I think it's pretty safe to say that we wouldn't. Agreed. Yeah, we might we might not have a Gary Gygax as we as we know him. For right? sure. Without this this stuff. Without Robert E. Howard specifically, but then uh, like you say, Nick, all the writers that come to this book, it just feels like they're reverent about the Howard stuff and about this world, and they respect the shit out of it. I don't know exactly why that is, but they they're, they seem to be careful yeah. about being true to Howard's legacy. Yeah, and you know? to be fair, for good and bad. Agreed. Sure. So there, I mean, there, there's some stuff that's a little too reverent for Conan, and that can help Conan feel a little samey sometimes and, mm-hmm. and feel a little over-tropish. So, you know, that's a great point. And, you know, to go back to my favorite Conan book of all time, Savage Sword of Conan, mm-hmm. where a lot of these tropes and things are born, right? The muscular guy standing on a pile of corpses with a sexy naked lady, you know, clinging to his, his muscular thigh. <laughs> you know, the image that literally has been parodied by Pick Something, you uh, know? Yeah, yeah, National Lampoon's Vacation, Family Guy, fuck, everybody yeah. knows Adventure this. Adventure Time. This, right, this image, right, is yeah. burned into the mind of humanity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but... It started in a place that I think, um, you know, it's definitely tropey now, but there was a time when, to me, like when I saw those covers, it was a, a mind-melting experience, mm-hmm. right? Because you, you hadn't seen it, because it wasn't a joke yet, because it wasn't a trope, mm-hmm. right? And Savage Sword was magazine size, so it did all this stuff that you couldn't do in comic books. You you know, uh, intense language, intense violence, mature storylines, and the you, reason they could do that, I'm sorry to interrupt, but sure. it, be, that format change allowed them to get outside of some of the strictures and censorship that was involved in like your comic book proper, 
Correct. Right. So that's yes. that's why you're able to get away with it because of that large magazine size. Correct. You yeah. know, uh, it didn't have the same rules as the comic code. It was sure, a magazine, sure, sure. so it f- fell outside their auspices. Right. And this attracted a lot of really top tier talent as well. A lot of comic book writers and artists wanted that freedom creatively. So they Marvel had a really neat time in the 70s of their magazine doing really well and attracting like some really kick ass people really quick. Barry Windsor Smith, who's a very, very famous artist. He's got legendary runs over at Marvel, kind of cut his teeth on Savage Sword, really big deal. Uh, Jim Starlin, Gil Kane, Neil Adams of Batman fame, a lot of people consider him the greatest Batman artist of all time, really cut his teeth on Savage Sword of Conan. Really cool stuff, right? And they were there because, you know, they could flex creatively a little bit, less censorship, so... Um, yeah, this comic ran for 235 issues, and I just want to say that... Savage Sword of Conan? Yes, 235 issues. The last issue was in 1995. Mm-hmm. So right, 1974, 1995, that's how long this book went. That's incredible for any comic book, mm-hmm. any anything. Fuck it, right? Um, but uh, I have... This is the one of the few books that I have a complete run on. You have the whole thing? Whole thing, all 235 issues. I've got multiple, multiple copies of my favorite issues. Number one, I probably got seven copies oh, of it in various right. grades. I got one that is probably a 9.8. It's the most beautiful comic book I own. It's absolutely the most like pristine comic book in my entire collection. 9.8 is the grade of the 9.8 comic 9.8 is book. the grade, yeah, excuse me. Uh, I haven't had it slabbed yet, but I'm really thinking about it. I've never had anything CCG'd in my life. This might be the book. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I just I love it so much. The pages are so white. It's so juicy. But uh, when I moved to Florida, real quick segue, in my life when I was younger, I was moving around a lot. Before the comic book store, I moved to Florida, and I was out in the middle of nowhere. I was in Ocala, Florida. There's nowhere around. The, Which no, is uh, pre- pretty much akin to Texas in the turn of the century. <laughs> right. It's exactly like Texas. Yeah, in 1920. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> no, everything's made of stone. Life is hard. There's no plants. Yeah. Yeah, it's a nightmare. There's one gas station for 100 miles. <laughs> yeah. But this one gas station had no comic books. Mm-hmm. It had a magazine rack. Yeah. And it had Savage Sword of Ma- uh, Conan magazine on it. Yeah. So in the middle of fucking nowhere, couldn't get comics. There's no such thing as a comic book store in the entire city of Ocala. And you want comics at this point. You are, want- you are already a comic book reader. Uh, you are yes. down with Conan. You want right. more of this shit. And there's nothing that you can read. I moved there for a job. Yeah. Fuck it. Here I am in the middle of nowhere. Retirement community nowhere. Boom, the only comic they have is Savage Sword of Conan. It was unbelievable, dudes. And I just had to share that with you guys because it was like this point of continuity between, you know, moving from Michigan, being a young man in a new weird place. Conan was there for me just waiting. Yeah. It was glorious. That's wonderful. So, (laughs) yeah. So I'm very, very excited to, you know, I've been waiting for this book since they announced it. We got Conan number one out. Marvel has the license back. So they Marvel originally published these comics. Dark Horse did it for a number of years. Marvel hasn't had this book for since 2000. Mm-hmm. So it's a big deal. The original, you know, English publisher of Marvel Comics has it back. And they're putting top-tier talent on it. Jason Aaron, like we mentioned, one of our favorite writers. And this guy, Mahmoud Esrar, is the artist. Holy shit, it's good art. Guys, I'm over the moon. I love this first issue so, so, so much. I've read it probably four times. <laughs> No shit. I read it last week twice. I read it again today to get ready for the show. Uh, I've just been flipping through it back and forth, picking out my favorite stuff. You brought a Conan action figure with you. There's a Conan action figure sitting in the studio with us right now, yeah. just fucking watching us. King Conan on the throne. Yeah. You know, just looking you, beautiful. Looks like he should have a little mic in front of him. <laughs> you know, I'd love if we could put Conan <laughs> on the mic. He'd have a lot to say, I'm sure. 
So I had mixed feelings about this book. Yeah, about, the new, about the new one. About the new one, yeah. I am a Conan fan. Mm-hmm. Curtis and I have geeked out for hours about mm-hmm. Conan and how dope he is. Yeah, the giant worlds, the fiction, all of it. Oh, it's yeah. like, it's huge. It's, there's so much good shit there. Right. right. So, But I do have mixed feelings about this book because like, as an fan of old school Conan the Barbarian books, this book fits in really well. It hits all the marks of old school Conan. Agreed. The, uh, thank you. The issue I hold with it is, while I like old school Conan, I would have liked to have seen them get rid of some of the tropes and try some new stuff and make it approachable for new readers. They definitely leaned in sure. to the Conan of it all. I am done mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with the super scantily clad woman in Conan. Yeah. I think we can move past it. To, and, and we've seen in fantasy comics that we already have moved past it. There are ways to do it. For sure. Yeah, for sure. I want badass warrior women. I want women who don't need Conan but choose to fight beside him. Sure. That's the type of woman I'm ready to see in a Conan book. There is a pivot point of this book yeah. where Conan is seduced. Yes. And then betrayed by the yes. woman that, that seduces him. Yeah. And I'm not super versed in Conan, but but this is a this is a Conan trope. Yeah. This yeah, is, and it I is would a say sword it's and sorcery a, trope in general. For sure. It, yeah, it's definitely gone on to be a classic. Yeah. Yeah. The beautiful woman's really a sea hag, you know. Yeah. And so I will, I, if it's gratuitous, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. In Conan, and especially in this issue, I, I think that's the world we're in. It's a different, it's a different place. Those men would attack her. That was a, that situation felt real and felt tense. So I, I think you're totally right. Yeah. But there is a choice being made to put that woman in that situation. Of, of and, course. And, and that's where you can you start to see like, well, why make that choice now? I, I thought it really worked in the story. I hear what you're saying, and don't get me wrong, I think we can elevate things. Sure. Uh, but I, I think Jason uh, Aaron handled it really, really well in this because he gave, he did that trope. He's Because that's what he's doing, you guys. For my money, he's doing... The Conan thing, he like you say, he's leaning into these expectations of what a Conan comic is. Yeah, I think he subverted them a, a little bit because it's the three separate stories kind of blending together, and I think he's going to take us to new places. You got to explain what that means—the three separate stories. Oh, you know, together. so we, it starts off right, and we've got um, you know a younger Conan, and then we flash to King Conan, and uh, which is know, when he's an older man and king of the king of the lands, right. And then it flashes back to him being just just out of Samaria and kind of finding his way in the world. So, you know, and he did this a little bit in, in Thor, too, right, where he did the three Thors. Mm-hmm. And it's, they, they're like different, totally different people. Like when you see them next to each other, you think one of them's Odin, but it's really just old Thor because they're, they've changed based on what they've seen. And they feel different, right? And I agree with you. And I like, like, Thor is a good comparison to Conan, I think. Yeah. Um, especially in the hands of Jason especially Aaron. Especially in the hands of Jason yeah. Aaron. But the thing that has happened with Thor over time, if you look from like Jack Kirby Thor to now, um, and, and we are in similar time zones as, as far as comics are concerned. In terms of publication. Exactly. It, Thor's changed a lot from Jack Kirby Thor. Sure. You know, and especially I'm talking in this particular moment, not only with plot, but physically. That dude has changed how he looks, how he dresses, what he wears, how he talks. Conan, especially in this particular issue, this Conan is a cookie-cutter takeout of Savage Sword of Conan. So for dudes like us who love Savage Sword of Conan, that's cool. I'm I'm down with more Conan. 
But I don't. I would. I think Jason Aaron has the chops to have made some improvements to this character. I mostly agree with you. I think he drops in these very subtle phrases and and details that do elevate it. You know, there's a pit fight right in the beginning where he just describes the spear of his opponent, and that's a Jason Aaron move, right? This is a normal pit fight, right? Where it's like, hey, this is we've all seen this shit. It's gladiators; they're cutting their heads off, and it's super violent or whatever. And he describes the you know the smell of rust and you know metal on meat, and you've sure. heard these, you've heard this before, right? If you've ever seen a story like this, but then he just drops a little tiny three sentence about how the spear of this warrior is older than Conan and the tree that it's made from. And, and Aaron does this at a few different times in this book that I think what we're going to get, and we'll see, time will tell, I think he's, he's, she's, he's given a love letter to Conan fans, right, with, like you say, throwbacks and shit, like this first page of the book is a giant collage of the most classic Conan shit, right? The most, you know, and they're just, like, it's a collage of the actual art from Savage Sword, from the original Conan the Barbarian, right? And this is meant for people who know Conan. Right. This means almost, you know, this means nothing to somebody who's never read Conan before, right? So my hope and my prayer, and that, that's not, that doesn't take anything away from how good I think this book is on its own, is that Jason's gonna go, he's gonna take us to different places. I hope you're right. I just, I disagree that this book was good on its own. I think it is definitely a love letter to older fans. And with Marvel with Marvel relaunching Conan and essentially making the book accessible to a brand new generation of people who can love Conan, I would have liked to have seen them taking some chances and updating the book a little bit because I just don't think it is appealing. And, and we need to take that stuff into consideration because while old Conan is cool for us, this is new Conan, and new Conan has to be more accessible and relatable to everyone who reads comics now because the c- crowd of people who read comics now were not the crowd of people who were reading Savage Sword of Conan in the 80s. I don't think it's approachable for new readers. If I was, and I think I was reading this and I got to Sexy Demon Lady, I think I would shut this book and put it back in the bag. Yeah, and I think it depends on the reader, but I think it shows women in, in bad situations and of, in a time you know, like the the wenches, like, you know, it, the bar wenches. You know, that sucks because now we would never have a bar wench, you know. But to think of it in the context of this book of the time, I don't think that's out of place. I don't think we need to dwell overly long on it, but I think it fits in the universe. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree know. with you there and say that um, while – while I love Conan, I do think this book does do a disservice to women, especially when we see fantasy books now, like Rat Queens, that portray women as badasses, as women who are independent of thought and can defend themselves and are part of the solution, not part of the problem. Um, I think we're going to see characters like that in the book. I don't think we're going to see all women reduced I we don't know. to that yeah, role. We, we don't no know, idea. and I certainly hope so, but just based off what is available, I think it was a real miss on the mark for how women were depicted in this book. Heard. Nick, you, you've been conspicuously silent. What do you got, man? What did you think of this book, Conan number one? See, I think that it is aimed at a, a if it's aimed at a at a Conan fan, I think he he nailed it. And I, I do agree with Marcus that it seems I just as I'm reading this book, I just kept thinking, do we need this book? Do we need a book like this? If this wasn't Conan, would I like this at all? And because it is Conan, because I do have an affection for it, and because I have an association with the character, you know, I had fun reading it. And I think that's the best you can hope for out of a Conan book, is that you have fun reading it. If it wasn't that 
character, I don't know. I, I would wonder what this book is doing and what purpose it's served in the larger conversation. If, if I'm trying to think about it in the larger conversation of about comics, right? So because you mentioned these things and you said a couple of times, Curtis, that that these are the, the treatment of women in this book makes sense in the logic of the world. And I, and I think you're probably right. But it's a big, juicy world that that uh, that he that he's made here sure. that, that Aaron is working with here. Yeah. And there's so many different things he can point the camera at. And he I don't know what the I don't know if it's necessary or uh, or cool to point the camera in that direction and to point the the camera at uh, at a woman seducing a dude and then betraying him just for the sake of it and just for the sake of like hitting the trope. Sure. And I I don't think that's all he's doing. I don't think he's just hitting the trope. I mean, you could make the same argument. uh, There's just a million ways to tell this story. And that was the the pivot point of this one. Sure. And I think showing some of the ugliness in, in a fantasy world is is tough to take in any story, really. You know, I struggle with Game of Thrones for, as an example, a lot of times because of a lot of the depictions of women. Yeah. Straight up. But it does frame this world. It does paint a picture of a time that the author's yeah, trying I to paint. Yeah, I also just don't buy that you know? Aaron doesn't have the chops to paint that world in a million different ways. And he, and he chose this one. Um, that's I'm not trying to throw this book sure, out with sure. the bathwater. I'm saying no, I, I want to I want to read the next few issues. I want to I want to see where it's going. Um, but I think it's a high wire act in 2019 now to make a book that is primarily about sex and violence. And to do it, you've got to do it really, really well. If anybody has the chops for it, I think it's Jason Aaron. I wasn't totally sold in this issue that he's accomplished that goal yet. I think those books can still be fun and cool to read. Don't do not get me wrong. Sure. But it is it, it takes a it takes a deft hand because we have, like you said, 50, 60 years of this kind of stuff if you want to read a comic book about that's strictly about sex and violence. So and we, I, we will see. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think I think this book uh, has some good horror elements as well. I, I I I can't wait to read the next issue. I thought this thing was a total slam dunk. Curtis score, Conan score. We give it a nine point two out of ten. All right, we'll give Curtis the last word on Conan. Can I get a recommendo from you? How about Curtis? I'm gonna. I'll start us off. I uh, watched some documentaries. Please, over... if I may. Yes. It may not be about a comic book or a video game. I'm sorry. It may not be about a comic book or a board game. Please continue. It has nothing to do with those two things. It's a documentary. Uh, R B G. I just watched Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary. Popped up in my queue. I watched a lot of documentaries. This one was the next one that popped up. You guys. You've heard of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Supreme I have, Court Justice. Absolutely. You know, long, long time litigator, lawyer before she became a Supreme Court Justice. Mm-hmm. Awesome lady. As awesome as you think she is, she's 50 times more cool and more important than you think she is. I was utterly blown away by, by how amazing this person was and how many cool things she was directly involved in. It was holy shit. It was so cool that. It made you realize that if one person did a different thing, a lot of times th- we would live in a different America. If Ruth Bader Ginsburg did not go on her path, we would live in a different country. That's how huge she is. And she's still fucking kicking ass. Watch this documentary. Very cool. Dig it. it. Yeah. Marcus? I'm going to give a wine recommendo. 
Recently had a wine from Michael oh. David Winery. Class up the joint a little bit there you go. and recommend a wine. It's uh I had a t- it's uh what the year that's available right now is the 2015 Petite Petite. I don't know what that means. It's a little na- little. It's the name of the wine. It's a uh, blend of 85% Petite Syrah and 15% Petite Verdot. Can I ask you a question really quick? I don't know shit about wine. Yep. Are blends cool? Was there a time when blends were like regarded as dog shit? And now blends are, are awesome, or am I making that up? Some people do some pretty good blends. Yeah, I agree. Okay. I'm this, not like super wine versed or anything, mm-hmm. but like some people do some pretty sweet blends. Okay. This petite petite comes out of California. Uh, I bought a bottle recently for eighteen dollars, so it's it's not a very expensive wine. Syrah has a little bit of a pepper flavor to it that I like, but it's not bone dry like some red wines. Okay. So it's not your sweet dessert wine. It's not a bone dry red wine. For 18, I've seen anywhere between 18 dollars $25. If you can pick a bottle up of this Petite Petite, it is one of the best red wines I've had in a long time. What's it pair with, the, you know, off the top of your head? So I've had it with venison. I've had it with beef. I've had it with stir fry. And I've liked it with all those things. Got it. I bought one bottle and then I went back to the place that I found it. And bought quite a few more bottles. I liked it that much. I haven't done that with the wine in a while. All right. Right up. All right. Hey, Nick. Yes. Do you have anything worth recommending that's not a comic nor a board game? Yeah, it totally is related to comics, though. Wait, fuck. You're not allowed to do that. I know, but here we go. So, Ed Piscor and Jim Rugg, who are two very good cartoonists, comic book writers, artists, have a YouTube channel and a show called Cartoonist Kayfabe. What's a kayfabe? I don't know. Do you know? It has something to do with wrestling, doesn't it? I feel like it does, but I do not know exactly. No. I don't know what it is. And I've only seen a little bit of their show here and there, but Rachel Polk, producer and editor of Super Skull, sent me a video last night of Ed Piscor and Jim Rugg going through a photocopied issue of Spawn Number 1. Excellent. That one of them, and I can't, I couldn't tell from who was speaking which one of them did it, but they were so into Spawn and they couldn't get access to the comics, so they borrowed a copy and photocopied every single page. Incredible. In the book, and he and they still have it, and it's just a camera on this book, and the, they photocopied it in black and white, and the dude fucking colored it himself. What? With his own markers. So, Ugh. not only that, but like, they... He just talks about, he has all these pictures that he drew when he was a kid. Oh, it was Ed Piscor, Rachel's pointing out. Thank you so much, Rachel. It was Ed Piscor who who had done this and who had photocopied the book. And it's also got drawings that Ed Piscor did of Spawn when he was a kid that he like still has access to. And he talks about how he saw Spawn and it just burned in his mind so hard that he had to go home and just draw it as soon as he could before it like leaked out of his mind. And I did the exact same thing when I was a kid. I just, that, it was the logo. It was the round spawn yep. logo. And as soon as I saw it, I, I just immediately went home and just started drawing it, just like over and over and over again, because it, it was so perfectly tuned to my like weird boy frequency brain. I just like had to make it with my hands. And seeing Ed Piscor talk about it and seeing how much he loved it. And these like little these drawings that he did with it just struck home so hard for me, and it was such a cool little video. We'll link to it in the show notes. That that is a neat show. I, they also go through old Wizard magazines, yeah, like page by page, That's and cool. break it down, and it's super fucking awesome. Yeah, so I we, so that show is really really cool, and uh, that that this particular clip, which is only like two minutes long, we'll throw it in the show notes. I, I do recommend though this week. This is like little. This is like little Nick. 
Oh, it's so dude. cute, man. It Are just you... brought me right back. You're getting like a little choked up right now, it looks like. No, that's false. You getting a little emotional about it? No, not at all. I see tears. Not even a little bit. You guys uh, want to call it? Let's call it, baby. Hey, it was a pleasure. We're back. It's a new year. We're back. We're back. We're back so hard. But we're not back anymore because we're done. That's it for the day. Oh, okay. That's actually going to do it for us today. Our producer and editor is Rachel Polk. Our music was created by A-Bomb. Super Skull is recorded every week at the Ann Arbor District Library. Please subscribe, download, review the Super Skull Show on Apple Podcasts. We're also on Stitcher and SoundCloud and all the other places you find podcasts. That's true. Not on SoundCloud. Not on SoundCloud at Definitely all. Definitely on Spotify. Spotify is yep, what I meant to we say. Go. We're yeah. for sure on Spotify. Yeah, we cool. are for sure on Spotify. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram and our website, superskullshow.com is how you find us. If you have it in your heart. You have it in your heart. If you could donate a dollar an episode, $5 a month, superskullshow.com slash donate is where you do it. If you can't do it. Just tell someone about the show. Just tell someone about the show. Tell someone that you think would be into the show about our show. Just it would mean the world to you us. You could text them. You could like, a link to our show and a text thing on your phone thing. Just text it to them. Just tell someone about the show. Yeah. Use technology. Super Skull is brought to you by Vaults of Midnight, Earth's finest comic books and stuff and podcasts since 1996. My name is Nick Wybar. I'm Marcus Schwimmer. And I'm Curtis Sullivan. And we wish you very good reading. Until next week. There's Captain Curtis. Now I get it. He's in the buff. Command the ship. He does with love. We're a part of boat. Cruising through a sea of love. I'm, I'm steering the boat in the buff? Yeah. <laughs> nice. He's got a hat. It's really tiny. Boat of love. Sail in the winds of lust, boat love. Take us to a place of lust. <laughs> Did you say sail in the winds of lust? Yeah, take us to a place of lust. Fuck yeah, man. <laughs>